Some of you may say at times, you know, I've never really had good role models in my life. Well, remember that you can learn as much from someone who does something badly as you can learn from someone who does something well. There is great power and great value in a bad example as well as a good one. I mean, why else would the story of Saul be in the Bible? Welcome to Open the Bible with Pastor Colin Smith. I'm David Pick. And Colin, one of the things I know you appreciate about the Bible is that it doesn't gloss over the ugliness, the brokenness of humanity. And often in those stories, we see a warning. Yes, and very bad role models. Saul, what kind of an example is Saul? You would not want to copy his life in any respect. I often want to encourage people who did not have good role models. You know, you didn't really have someone who fathered you well, a father who parented you well, or a mother who parented you well. And and so the instinct is, well, I didn't have a good role model and So that puts me at such a disadvantage. You can learn so much from a bad role model. The very fact that you're able to say this was not good means that God has put into your heart a sense of something better and you can be something better. You can be what you did not receive because God can enable you to give it. So I want to give encouragement for people in this situation and uh, I hope that the message today is going to be an encouragement in that regard. And I think it will be. So let's get straight into it. Our scripture passage is in the first book of Samuel, chapter 22. As we begin the new message, bitter, distressed, and in debt. Here's Pastor Colin. Well, we're returning today to our series entitled The Tale of Two Kings. And uh, last time we saw how Saul had moved down the broad road of destruction. You remember that this is the story about a man who was in rebellion against God. And as he stayed on that path, we found that sin gained a stranglehold in his life. We saw that sin always gains power in a person's life over time when it goes unchecked. And we followed the path last time as it was in Saul. Remember, professional jealousy that began with a silly song that people were singing that compared Saul to David. And, uh, you know, Saul has struck his thousands down, but David has struck down his tens of thousands. And that went into Saul. And this impulse in Saul's heart then becomes a pattern in his mind. He eyed David, and then that becomes a pattern of behavior. He ends up unimaginably, just a few months earlier, throwing a spear at someone he once said that he had loved. And then he descends into this awful cycle of frustration. It's a terrible story of a person who just will not stop resisting God. And so there was no way out for Saul. There isn't any way out for the person who continues resisting God. So Saul is a kind of warning figure in the Bible. His life's a disaster. And it is therefore a kind of signpost, a red warning sign that says to us, this is not the way, do not walk in it. By the way, remember this, and it may be useful to you sometime. There is great power and great value in a bad example as well as a good one. That, I mean, why else would the story of Saul be in the Bible? Now, this man Saul then reigned for a total of about 40 years. And here's the tragedy of his life, that it seems that about half of that entire time was spent with this um, growing obsession that Saul had over destroying David. 
And uh, we're following the story. We've already seen that twice he threw the spear. Then he goes to Jonathan in a kind of plot against David. And of course, Jonathan's heart is already pledged to David. He wants nothing to do with it. Then Saul sends guards to David's home. And David, you may remember, is married to Saul's daughter. She really loves him. And in chapter 19, just to fill in the chapters over which we've moved quickly, chapter 19, you have this wonderful story of how Michal, uh, David's wife, lets him down from the bedroom window on a rope. And David is able to escape from Saul's men who are standing outside the house. And then Michal, with great imagination, puts uh, some stuffing in the bed so that when the guards come in in the morning, they think that David's still there, lying asleep under the blankets. And so David gets time to escape. Marvelous, marvelous story. And from that moment onwards, David is on the run from Saul. In chapter 21, he comes to a town called Nob. We'll come back to that again, God willing, next week. Then David goes to Gath, which of course was in enemy territory. And then today we're picking up the story in chapter 22, where we find David now in a cave. So he's gone from the palace to the cave. And he's in this cave of Adullam. Think about this. Just try and get the picture in your mind. This man is the Lord's anointed. He's the future king. And he has no place to lay his head. Remember how Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The son of man has no place to lay his head. Well, David points us forward to Jesus in that way at this point. And here we find him with no particular home, but uh, finding shelter in this Very large cave. Some of these caves are absolutely huge in that part of the world. This cave of Adullam. Now David is not alone. Because God is with him. And in these uh, verses that we've read, we have the fascinating story of the people who then committed themselves to David. And so just to get the picture in your mind before we go into the story, think about what is happening here in the context of the big picture of the Bible story, because we're not just here to learn lessons about David today. You have a king who has left his home. You have a king on whom the future hopes of all his people depend. You have a king who is being hunted by a tyrant who is trying to take his life. And this king is gathering people around him. And they see in him now the glory that one day everyone will see when it is revealed. I only need to say these things and uh, your mind, if you're a Christian, will very quickly go forward to Jesus Christ and you will see how we look at the story of Jesus through the story of David today in Jesus was the despised king for whom there has been no room in this world. And he is gathering his people uh, in anticipation of the day when his glory will be revealed. You're listening to Open the Bible and Pastor Colin Smith. And when we come back in a moment, we're going to look at a description of Christ's people. If you ever miss one of our broadcasts, you can catch up or listen again by going online to openthebible.org.uk. There you can stream any of our previous broadcasts or download an MP3 for free. 
Today's message is based on 1 Samuel, chapter 22. So let's get back to the message now. Here's Pastor Colin. Now, what I want to offer to you tonight from this uh, passage of Scripture is very simply a fourfold profile, if you like, of people who come to Jesus Christ. And I'm taking it directly out of the story of the people who came to David, uh, the king in the cave, But we're looking through the story of David so that we'll see this description, this profile, if you like, of what it looks like really to be a Christian. What does real commitment to Jesus Christ look like? Well, I want to suggest to you that very clearly in this story, we have a profile of what a genuine commitment to Jesus Christ looks like straight out of the commitment of these people in the Old Testament who gathered around the despised king, and put their trust in him. Number one, the people who came to David and the people who come to Christ are people who realize how much they need him. Notice what it says here. David departed, verse 1, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now, just pause here for a moment. Here we see David's family at their best. Earlier, we saw them at their worst. Do you remember that? David's father, Jesse, didn't even think it was worth bothering to introduce his youngest son, who he describes as the least. Didn't even think it was worth introducing him to Samuel. And you remember from the story of Goliath that when David uh, goes to the battlefield where Goliath is shouting out against the Lord's people, that David's brothers really despise him. They don't think anything of him. You know, what are you doing here, kid brother kind of stuff, is the way that Eliab speaks in regards to uh, David. But having seen them at their worst, and the Bible tells it as it is always, Here we see them at their best, at this time of great difficulty and great loneliness in David's life. The family gathers around him. And just to draw from that, I have found this principle very helpful in my own life, and I commend it to you. When people disappoint you, it is helpful to say to yourself, now this is what they are like at their worst. But then immediately ask God to help you to remember what they are like at their best. And you will find that these thoughts coming into your mind at that moment of disappointment will be immensely helpful to you. And here we see David's family at their best. They come down to him when he's in the cave of Adullam. And what a marvelous encouragement and blessing that must have been to David. Now, having said that, it is also true that this was, of course, the only hope for the family. Because David's family, known in terms of their home there in Bethlehem, would have been the most obvious of targets for Saul in his increasingly irrational assaults against uh, David. Remember, Saul is putting everything into destroying David. This is becoming the whole consuming focus and passion of his life. And David has gone into hiding. 
Well, it's not beyond the wit of Saul to say, I know how to get David out of hiding. I'll go get his family and I'll take them hostage. That's what happens in the news today. And that way I can blackmail him. Then he'll have to come out into the open. That's exactly the sort of thing Saul would have done. And the family are wise to this, and they knew that their position in their uh, well-known location in Bethlehem was absolutely desperate, and there was really no hope for them except that they should go and join David. And their logic was this, if God should protect David, then we will be protected. And if God does not protect David, we have no other hope anyway. All our hope is in him. We need David, and so they go and they join him there, verse 1. And that really sets the pattern. Because notice what we're told next in what I think is one of the fascinating verses in the Old Testament. We're told in verse 2 that everyone, how's this for a description? Everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David as well. I mean, you read this, you say, what a motley crew. They're all coming out of the woodwork here. And uh, to get the picture of what happened and what is being described here, I want you to turn back with me for just a moment to 1 Samuel in chapter 8. Will you turn with me in your Bible? 1 Samuel in chapter 8. And this will explain why there were so many of these people coming to David. Um, Remember that God's people had asked for a king. God gave them what they wanted But before that happened, Samuel told them what would happen because of their desire to be like the other nations. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 10, let me read these verses to you. Samuel tells them exactly what lies ahead. And of course, he's a prophet. It all came true. So Samuel, 1 Samuel 8 and verse 10, told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. That's what he'll do. He will take your sons and appoint them in his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. You're getting the picture. Then verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Then says Samuel, verse 14, here's what's going to happen on top of that. He's going to take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards, and he's going to give them to his servants. Then he's not done even yet. Verse 15, here's what's going to happen with King Saul. He's going to take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, and he's going to give it to his officers and to his servants. And then verse 16, you'll take your male servants, your female servants, the best of your young men and your donkeys, and he'll put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. You get the picture. This is what you're in for, folks. You get a tyrant king. This is what life's going to be like. And what God said through the prophet Samuel, of course, was precisely what happened. Saul became a tyrant. By the way, the definition of a tyrant is someone who exercises authority over others and will not submit to authority themselves. That's what a tyrant is. And of course, Saul was the king. 
The only person to whom the king in that culture could have submitted was God. And since he will not submit himself to God, he is by definition a tyrant. And that is why his rule became more and more and more destructive for the people. And so now we're more than 20 years after 1 Samuel chapter 8 when this prophecy was given. There have been these years of this oppressive rule and all that has gone into it in the experience of these people. You try and put yourself today into the shoes of a village farmer and try and imagine yourself sitting in your home and one evening, there you are and there's a knock on your door and it's Saul's men who are there and they say, how many sons are in this house? And you say, two. They say, well, one of them, the oldest one's got to come with us right now. He's got to be one of the king's chariot drivers. Then six months later, same thing happens. How many daughters in this house? One. She's got to come with us. She's going to be involved in the king's kitchen. She's going to become a, a cook there. And off she got, you've got absolutely no say in this. Military rule. And then you work through the year in your vineyards and in your orchard, the land that God in his great kindness has given to your family as part as your allotment uh, that was trusted to you as uh, your inheritance in the promised land. And you cultivate this and you begin to see that there's a harvest coming and you say, well, now this is going to be marvelous because we're really going to have something here. And then when the harvest comes, Saul's men are at the doors again. Now we've looked at these orchards and we've looked at the vineyards and we want this one, this one, this one for the king and we want a tenth of the harvest from everything else. We'll be taking it. And you say, you've already taken my son, you've already taken my daughter, now you're taking a tenth and then you're taking uh, these fields and these orchards and these vineyards. I mean, I'm absolutely powerless. What can I do? And this has been going on year after year after year, according to the prophecy of Samuel the prophet. So is it surprising to you to read in chapter 22 and verse 2 that there were people who were bitter in soul? This tyrant's taken my son, he's taken my daughter, he's taken my fields. I've worked all year, I've worked my finger to the bone to make a living and there was a harvest coming and he's just taken off the best of it. And what can I do about it? And it's not hard under these circumstances to see why so many people were in debt. There was no fault of their own. How in the world do you have financial stability when Saul can come at will and take the best of your fields and the best of your sources of income and just annex them as his own? People were beginning to see that the situation under Saul was completely and utterly hopeless. This man who they had wanted and, and who they thought was going to be such a blessing and make us like the other nations. And now they discovered that to be like the other nations was a dreadful curse. And Saul was the king. And kings don't get elected, folks. You don't get to vote him out after four years. And the only hope, therefore, for those who were bitter in soul because of these wretched, repressive experiences and had been reduced to debt because of the annexing of their land and were in great distress, what was the only hope with such a king? The only hope was another king. The only hope was that there would be someone who'd bring an end to this wretched kingdom and start a new kingdom. And they knew it. A king who would wipe the slate clean 
and enable an entirely new beginning. And these people who are bitter, distressed, and in debt, they're seeing that Saul is now consumed with one person who he wants to destroy. And that one person is David. And they're not fools. They're working it out. He's our man. And so verse 2, what we discover is that these people, bitter, in debt, and distressed, they are, verse 2, gathering to David. And can you picture it in this vast cavern? One after another is coming, and they're pledging their loyalty to him. Now, folks, this is a marvelous story. But remember, we are not here today simply to learn a few interesting lessons from the life of David. We're looking through this story so that we can understand what it really means to be a Christian, what it means to come to Jesus Christ. And the people who come to Jesus Christ, here's what it really means to be a Christian. Uh, People who come to Christ are like the people who came to David. Uh, These folks knew that they needed David, and people who come to Jesus are those who know that we need him. We need him because he's the only hope from the tyranny of sin that brings blight and devastation to our lives. People who come to Jesus Christ are people who know that they are sunk, sin has sunk them in a debt to God, that we can never pay. That we are completely and utterly hopeless in our own position before God. People who come to Jesus Christ are people who have tasted how bitter sin is. That though it seems like such attractive fruit, it leaves you with a sense of emptiness and of guilt and of shame. And you say, if only there was a way to have my life washed clean, to to have a new start, to make a whole new beginning. People like that come to Jesus Christ. Bitter, distressed, and in debt. We come to Jesus Christ because our only hope lies in a new king and in a new kingdom. We've got to pause here, but what a great truth to reflect on. You've been listening to Open the Bible with Pastor Colin Smith and our message, Bitter, Distressed and In Debt, part of our study series on the life of King David. We're going to continue with the study next time. If you ever miss one of our broadcasts, you can easily catch up by going online to our website, openthebible.org.uk. There you can download any of the previous messages or simply stream them from the website. Also on the website, you'll find Open the Bible Daily, a series of short reflections, just two to three minutes, with a new one appearing on the website every day. These are written by Colin Smith and read by Sue McLeish. Open the Bible is supported by our listeners, and we want to thank you. If you'd like to set up a regular donation to Open the Bible of £5 per month or more, we would love to send you a copy of a book You can trust God with your story, Embracing the Mysteries of Providence. And Colin, I know this was written by your longtime friends, Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth and Robert Walgamuth. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, Nancy has long been a friend of Karen and myself as her, her husband, uh, Robert. And I'm absolutely delighted to be able to offer this book that they've collaborated on together. Nancy is a wonderful and insightful Bible teacher. And Robert is a wonderful writer as well. And in this collaboration, they've brought together a collection of stories from the Bible and also a collection of stories from Christian experience. And what these two together do is they draw out how God works in the lives of his children, especially in things we don't understand. It's a wonderfully helpful book for anyone who's saying, what is God doing in my life? What is God doing in the world? It deals with God's providence, and it reminds us that God is the one who writes the story of his children's lives. Find out more, including how to give online, at openthebible.org.uk. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any comments or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at openthebible.org.uk. For Colin Smith and Open the Bible, I'm David Pick, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Open the Bible is supported by our listeners. For details, go to openthebible.org.uk. What does commitment to Jesus Christ look like? Find out next time on Open the Bible.